0: Well, but the team is coming out of the tunnel now as we get ready for the kickoff of this game. Here we go. And we
1: have to say this starting freshman is a little different looking. I'd have to agree. The Fighting Irish have never had a player that looks quite like him. And
0: that's even going back to when Newt Rockney was the coach.
1: Your eye kind of just goes right to him. He
0: doesn't even look like a football player. In
1: fact, the players all seem to be trying to steer clear of him. Yes,
0: they certainly are. Almost afraid of him. Maybe it's because he's from France. Could be. The Hunchback of Notre Dame will not be presented at this time, so we may bring you this special podcast. It's almost live.
2: Still alive.
0: It's alive!
2: A limited podcast series about Northwest Television's legendary TV sketch comedy show. An amazing phenomenon. Featuring intimate conversations with the writers, performers, creators.
0: Rustlers, cutthroats, murderers, bounty hunters, desperados, bushwhackers, swagglers, horse thieves, bull dykes, train robbers, bank robbers, ass kickers, shit kickers, and
2: Your host was one of them. I think I would remember a thing like that. Pat Cashman. What's the matter with you?
0: Almost
2: Live. It's just a real nice surprise. Still Alive. Just a real nice surprise.
1: Someone once asked me what a TV producer does. Now that someone was me. I asked me what a TV producer does. Maybe I should ask Bill Stainton instead, because he was a TV producer. Specifically, the TV producer of Almost Live. If that show could be compared to a farm operation, then Bill Stainton was the cruel overseer, the guy making sure the crops got in each week. Keeping the farm analogy going here, he was the guy who did the hiring and the firing, supervised the operation, sometimes he drove the tractor, he put together the budgets, and when necessary, went to the whip. I still have the old scars and you should see the ones on Steve Wilson's back. I mean you can hardly see his tattoos anymore. Bill was of course nothing like that but as the show producer he had to deal with the various staff sharecroppers, the malcontents, agitators, drifters, hard workers, soft workers, non-workers, while also nurturing the creativity being a comforter, motivator, prodder. He was technically the boss without being bossy. And for most of the life of Almost Live, Bill Stanton was the show's protector. So whenever station management, the advertisers, politicians, or the viewers got pissed off, he was the one who attempted to be the conflict counselor, uh, the mediator, the negotiator, the front man, walking the line between compromise and defense. But since Almost Live was not a big show, Bill also had to do the other stuff running the meetings, performing, writing, hiring interns, budgeting, deciding what was going to be on the show each week and what wasn't. That's all a producer does. Since the production of Almost Live ended abruptly over two decades ago, Bill Stanton, like all the rest of us, has moved on to new things. For the last several years, He's found considerable success as a keynote speaker. In fact, in 2019, he was inducted into the National Speaker Hall of Fame. Me? I was recently inducted into the National Listener Hall of Fame, but I'm not gonna brag about that right now because we're about to visit with Bill Stainton. Thanks to Zoom technology, here he is visiting from his Seattle area house, which is located immediately adjacent to his Seattle area garage. Bill Stainton, how are you doing?
3: I'm doing very well, Pat, and I'm spacing out on the last name.
1: I believe it's Stainton.
3: But um, I'm doing very well. How are you?
1: You know, that's, that's a good question because I don't know about you, Stainton is not a name I know from any place else. Everybody I know with a similar name to yours <laughs> is Stanton right Early stanton and you must get that all the time
3: i get it all the time so much that i i mean my website is billstanton.com and i really wanted to get billstanton.com also just cuz that's what people <laughs> yeah. always but it was taken by yeah. think
1: of think of the gigs you're losing with not having that <laughs> thousands yeah. of gigs. Right. I, I always get pat Cushman. invariably Do pat you? Cushman. wow so now i i just adopt it when i give when i give speeches that i just introduce myself Right let's let's get this over with that's who I am right,
3: right. yeah i always tell I always tell my introducers when they say "How's it pronounced, I say it's pronounced Stainton. but you're on before I am, so whatever you say, that's who I have to be
1: yeah exactly exactly you um, your story first of all, and I'm going to embarrass you, maybe I won't embarrass you,
3: Uh-oh.
1: but uh, you're the only guy I know in my life uh that is a so smart that they belong to the Mensa society, <laughs> and i I was thinking about this. We had you hired or, or, or inherited some really smart people. We yeah. had Ed Wyatt went to Stanford, right? Bob Nelson's brilliant. Ed, uh, Keister, UW grad, mm-hmm. Joel McHale graduated, uh, in the drama department. Did he
3: technically uh, graduate? graduate? I
1: guess he did. Well, I don't, I don't know. He said he did. I, I don't <laughs> know. I've never seen a diploma, but, uh, and Tracy Conway As of a, has, has a master's
3: in fine arts. Mm-hmm.
1: Master's and, and, and you can go down the line. I think you decided, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. You decided, you know what? We got too many smart people on the show. Let's bring Pat Cashman in here, too. That's not to even things out.
3: Yeah, that's not too far off because we, we
1: need some dumb guys on here. We
3: need balance. Yeah, exactly.
1: Because most of the, you know, at least half of the people in Seattle are dumb. Right. Let's face it, I'm, I don't think I'm, I'm uh, going to engender a bunch of protest about that. They're just not that smart, but we need them as viewers
3: because we figured you know hey if pat gets the joke then we're probably okay
1: yeah so thank you for that i appreciate it, it Sure. Changed i'm pretty life. sure i
3: got into Mensa under some kind of an affirmative action program by the way
1: now how did you get to be well first of all but let's back up a little bit where did you grow up where where's your hometown
3: my hometown is lancaster pennsylvania amish country my backyard growing up was an amish dairy farm
1: are you
0: a furniture maker when you think of the amish you envision old world quality craftsmanship discipline, pride, and dedication. Tradition.
3: I am not a furniture maker, um, Mm -hmm. but I can, I'm pretty sure if push came to shove, I could still milk a cow if I had, if I absolutely had to for survival.
2: All right. Good to see you. My name is Farmer Jack, and I'm here to show you how to milk a cow.
1: I wish this was uh, not just an audio podcast. I would like to bring bring a cow into your house and see, see if you still got the uh, ability to tweak the, the teats as it were you don't just start yanking and pulling because you got a relaxer now farmers call that
3: letting the milk down doesn't have to be the cow we could probably just catch a rabbit or something i'm sure the technique is similar
1: so you so you, how long did you and then where did you go I, uh, you grew up in that town did you move at all in that
3: town ta- no i kind of grew up in that town the first real move i had not counting college uh was
1: which which was where
3: uh, two colleges. One was the hometown college, Franklin and Marshall, which is a small liberal arts college in Lancaster,
1: named after Bonnie Franklin and, <laughs> Bonnie Franklin and uh, Penny Marshall. Marshall Dillon.
3: Uh, so <laughs> pretty <much. laughs> that's pretty good. Okay, <laughs> Penny Marshall. Yeah, why not? Wow, who uh, knew that? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then I went to uh, the um, I went to University of Delaware, the Fighting Blue Hens. Oh my gosh! I didn't know that. Yeah. So Franklin <laughs> the Marshall, the uh, the mascot was um, we, we were called the Diplomats, which you know always always strikes fear into the hearts of your you know athletic
0: opponents. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, we're not going to play in the <laughs> Diplomats. Right. Are we, we
3: meet on the fifty-yard line and negotiate a peaceful settlement of some sort. <laughs> so we were called <laughs> the Dips. I thought, well, that's just too stupid. So I moved to another college. And it's like, oh, the Fighting Blue Hens. I, I thought i'm ne- i'm ne- and, and then and then i moved to portland oregon for for tv and where they've got you know the ducks and the beavers i thought i'm just not destined to get a good yeah, no, uh a good mascot which is why i, I finally had to to seattle thing.
1: yeah keister used to do a bit because he went to franklin high school right uh they were called the franklin quakers he said now they're <laughs> it's a right. it's a pacifist religion and how did <laughs> how bad do you think that scared anybody right
2: right exactly field.
1: Um, so then, so you went to Del- is is University of Delaware considered an Ivy League school or are they no. <laughs> just just off the list?
3: Uh, just off the list. Yeah, they didn't didn't quite make it uh, there. Uh, it's big. The, the the big claim to fame from for for Delaware, at least the town of Newark, Delaware, is that it's uh, it's where George Thurgood, uh, the guy who did Bad to the Bone,
1: yeah yeah sure. <laughs>
3: Yeah, we used to hang out uh, together because he kind of liked the college. Well, of course, we were all younger then. So.
1: They don't have a medical school there, do they? Osteopathic medicine, maybe?
3: Uh, I, don't, I know they have a nursing school. I don't think they okay. have a medical school or a law school. If,
1: if they did, and he got into that program, we might know the song as bad to the femur right now or something <laughs> else. So <laughs> we, we, kind of worked out better for dumb guys like me. <laughs> what was your uh, major? What, what did you major and minor in?
3: I uh, majored in international and comparative broadcast communications. So basically I'm uh, a communications major.
1: Yeah, me too. Yeah, well, and, and I don't know what you tell young people, but. I tell them. I'm, I'm, I'm not allowed to
3: talk. Oh, I'm not allowed close enough to talk to, to young people to talk to them.
1: Well, if there's a cyclone fence in between you or something, that's I guess. True, that's true. I, I just tell them don't do not major in communications. It's a total waste of time. Oh yeah. If you want if you want to get into broadcasting later, fine. Get a degree in political science or history, oh, history or something. Or,
3: yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Or uh, even basket weaving. Something would be better.
3: Something than would that, be better.
1: Which, which it's utterly Mickey Mouse stuff. It yeah. was stupid. but
3: Although it did get me my first job in television. Actually, what got me my first job in television, it was a secretarial job at the at the the local TV station in Lancaster, WGAL, the NBC affiliate there. And, um, WGAL? The WGAL, yeah.
1: Oh, man. You know the first radio station I ever worked at? K-Girl. B-R-L. G R L K K-Girl.
3: Yeah. We should have got together we those two. We should have. Yeah. But what, what what actually got me the job? I went through a bunch of interviews, more than you'd think, for like a you know a secretarial position, and apparently it came down to me and one other person. And the last thing was a typing test. So if oh. I hadn't been able to outtype that guy, um, <laughs> <laughs> you
0: know, go Bill, go.
1: When you were going through the broadcast program, yeah, at the UD, U-D the D, fighting, U-D. fighting. Bl- fighting blue oh, no it's not you it'd be Udell, yeah yeah you know, yeah fighting, fighting blue hands blue chickens <clears throat> you did did you say i want to be a, an on-air performer ultimately i want to be a newscaster what did you think you wanted to do with that degree
3: actually i think if i would could have possibly known about almost live that would have been my dream job that's what i would have wanted to do you know i was looking at things like you know saturday night live which yeah. kind of just start because they began in 75 and I graduated in 80 something or other. So, you know, SNL was still fairly new. And, um, that was like that. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. That would be so cool to do something like that.
1: So that early on, you thought about that. So let's jump ahead, uh, a, a little bit because I am so, so. Hey, you're driving a guy and I'm a little drunk. Um, <laughs> why does it, why does a guy that is from Pennsylvania what what brings him out to the West Coast? How'd that happen?
3: Uh, a TV gig. I was working. Um, so so I, I t- said I was working at WGAL, and I was a um, it was a secretarial position for a show called PM Magazine, oh, which yeah. used to be you know it was it was a national syndicate basically of shows. Mm-hmm. The only one of which still remains is in Seattle, uh, Seattle yeah. Evening Magazine at King TV. Evening Magazine.
2: Go to your happy place. But wow. there used to
3: be about 120 of them around the country. And um I ended up producing some some pieces for for our local one that got shared on the what they call the national reel. See, so it was it was a phenomenal time to get your feet wet with television because you you could produce something like in this little town of Lancaster that would get seen nationwide, and it mm-hmm. drew the attention of um a woman in Portland, Oregon, at KGW, which is a which was a King Broadcasting station,
1: great station. Yeah, yeah.
3: and she was looking for a for a um, a story producer because she had just been promoted to show producer, and she was looking for somebody to replace herself. And she thought, um, God, this guy from like you know this little town keeps getting stuff on, and it's pretty good, and he'll probably work cheap. So, um,
4: <laughs>
3: so and she was right on all accounts, and and she yeah, uh, sure. and she uh, flew me out and um offered me the job so i did that, you know, for that a couple of years yeah
1: that stuff is is harder and harder to come by for young broadcasters who have broadcast ambitions now but i don't know anybody that got into broadcasting for the dough no. you just wanted you wanted the work you just wanted the chance wanted the,
3: that's you. right that's right yeah
1: yeah so you get out there and then uh you, so you're producing stories for this PM magazine show in Portland, and uh then what progresses from there. I'm still trying to get us to almost live, oh, okay, well so I, can, know, I can I can those me.
3: dots really easily for you. So I, I produced stories for PM magazine um for about a year there, and then a few of us at the station came up with this kind of wacky idea to to let's hey, let's do a nightly game show, like with a studio audience. And we developed one. It was called On the Spot.
0: Right now, here's the superlative host of Channel 8's On the Spot. It's, it's Larry Blackmore. <laughs> Thank you, Michael Bailey. And welcome, everyone, once again,
2: to another edition of On the Spot. We've got three great players, thousands of dollars in cash and prizes that we
3: want to give away tonight. And um, and we did it. And so I was the, I was the original producer and, and one of the, the creators of that show.
1: What was the premise of the game show? Was it a question and answer thing? Or it, what? Was a, it was a Q&A,
3: trivia, Q&A, three contestants and a host and, you know, yeah, that kind of thing. What
1: country's flag features a red circle and a white
3: background? Yes, Ryan.
1: Japan. It's the flag of Japan. Now, I don't think you could do a game show like that nowadays. Maybe you could, but it would be- I think you'd have people out there with their iPhones. Oh, yeah. Lo- looking up the answers, even as you're asking them questions.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, it would, it would be tough. Yeah. And so I produced that for the first year and was really looking forward to, you know.
1: That was your idea to do it?
3: Um, it was me and um, a few other, like three other people, all of whom's names I've forgotten. And that was, and, and it was actually basically three other people and me. I mean, I'd say it was me and three other people as if I was. Okay,
1: well, you you know, since you can't even remember their names, why don't you take full credit for
3: yeah, it? Yeah, you know, fair point. I'll, yeah, I'll, okay. I'll take full credit right. for it. And I was really looking forward to producing the second season because you know during the summer you kind of like okay what worked what didn't work and that sort of thing, and that's when I got the call from from King TV for this uh, show Almost Live. Uh, so you remember what year
1: what year that was?
3: It would have been eighty four or eighty five because it was, oh. it was it was it was it was during the second season. So and Almost Live went on the air September twenty third nineteen eighty four. So this this would have been right, you know, in, right. in, in eighty five or something like that and um the original producer a wonderful woman named Dana Dunell um it, she she realized that this was it just what she just wasn't the right match uh to be producing a comedy show uh she I mean, she was the original producer but she was really more of a talk show kind of producer and yeah it it just i mean she's a uh, a really great person but just it 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 just wasn't wasn't a good match
1: do you think there was a misogynistic aspect to it that uh, she wasn't accepted by at least at the time was mostly an all male cast and and writing staff was was that part of why she didn't think she could do it I, or didn't want to do it
3: I never got that impression from her I think she just realized that it wasn't her her genre um mm. I, I mean you're right it it was very very prominently male and certainly extraordinarily prominently you know caucasian
1: Male. but what made you think that it was your genre you you didn't uh you know you didn't uh, well what you know, happened was uh, do comedy shows before
3: no i hadn't done comedy shows before um what happened was uh from what i understand they king had been looking for an, for another producer and they kind of looked around the country and couldn't find anybody and then one of the another guy who actually worked at king who knew me a guy named drew keller uh, said hey you know there's this guy yep. there's this guy down he's just down in Portland at KGW you might want to talk to because he might be good about this uh good with this uh so then you'd
1: only have to you'd only have to hire a U-Haul and exactly. get him up here. yeah yeah
3: yeah it's a cheap move but what they were looking for specifically um uh I mean they were look, looking for a producer and specifically what they were looking for is somebody who had field production experience Right. Which I had through did. PM magazine. You know, you take a camera, you go out into the field, because as you know, almost live was, you know, a lot of field pieces. But somebody who also had experience doing a studio based show with a crew and a and an audience. Yeah. And that's okay. That's that was tough to find outside of New York or LA, but I had that because of the game show. Yeah. And you somebody who at the least boxes, was comfortable sure. with the, you know, you know, who could at least speak comedy somewhat, although that was kind of a secondary consideration. Um and I remember doing the interviews. I interviewed a whole, I, mean, I interviewed with a whole bunch of people at King, uh, most of whose jobs, I didn't know what they were. So I didn't know why I was right. interviewing with like, you know, Craig Johnson and all that. I, Sales
1: manager. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The, the guy who, uh, the janitor. Right. Yeah.
3: And then of course I had to interview with, uh, I can't remember if I talked to you or not, but but I, I did have to interview with Ross and Ross was like, how will you help us get good guests? I like, I don't know. And, and then Keister, whose only thing is, are you going to make us wear funny noses? I said, no. So, so 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 I got his seal of approval. <laughs> he just wanted well, to that's sure it was not one of those you know hee haw kind of things. So
1: can you remember the first day that you were there? Because I would think that you're, you, first of all you're coming into it. You're not at the uh, you're not at the beginning of this show. You're taking right. over the reins right. of a horse that's already running. Right. Uh, what's that? That must have been intimidating,
3: right? Yeah, it was intimidating somewhat, um, but I do remember. <laughs> I do remember we had our first meeting and, and Bill Nye was late as, as his want, as, as is his want. And Ross had told me, he said, okay, here's what'll happen. When Bill Nye will walk in, he'll be carrying a briefcase and it'll look like he's a marionette. He's just, his arms are just going to be swinging all over the place.
2: <laughs> and <in>
3: five minutes <laughs> coming up that hall, there, there comes Bill Nye, arms just swinging akimbo and this briefcase and all that. So, so okay, that's, That's cool.
1: Okay. Safety glasses on. And Bill was a, uh, was a member of the writing staff.
3: Yeah. 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 He was, he was the lowest paid writer and was up until he became actually, maybe he was the lowest paid writer up until the, up until the time he actually left almost live. I can't remember.
1: Yeah. I, I, I've lost track of him, but I hear that he's still struggling. I think so. I
3: think so. You know, you, you keep hoping that everybody that you've worked with will land on their feet, but after a while you stop caring.
1: Yeah, you do. Yeah and and him landing on his feet is landing on two really flat feet
3: <laughs> they're landing My on two, two really yeah. flat feet that's right yeah but yeah. yeah no it was it was intimidating um ross in particular because you know just ross has that star i mean he's 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 got star aura around yeah him. yeah
1: he's a generally charismatic type of guy I mean, yeah that would be uh yeah i i would be intimidated as heck by that yeah uh, especially, yeah. you're, you're not proven a dang thing to anybody yet. haven't proven and anything. And you're, you're going to come in and, and pilot this ship.
3: Yeah. Uh, not really knowing what I'm doing. Um, I did get them to build a new set. Or I, I guess maybe they had just, because they had shown me, uh, they had sent me a tape of like something from the first season. And they said, what do you think? Because we did talk on the phone. It was me and, couldn't have been Demi Massana. I don't know who it was. But I said, well, first of all, that set, because the first season you you, you all were shooting on the, uh, on the, on the morning show set. And I said, first of all, that set is not conducive to, uh, to comedy. It's just, it's just, you know, it doesn't work. And I think, so I think it was, I think it might have been.
1: I didn't remember that. You know, I, I was not really involved with the show. Yeah, well, you were in the market sometime after, until sometime after you arrived and then slowly kind of worked my way in, but. I forgot that it was shot on a wholly different set and not a designated right set for the, for that particular show. Right, hmm.
3: right, exactly. So I think I think it was season three when we got the new the new set, and that was so that kind of uh, made people feel okay about me. And then I think um, the first comedian I booked for show three hundred one because that's how we numbered them. Season three, show one, uh, three hundred one yeah. was was Seinfeld. And I think Ooh. uh Jerry Seinfeld. Um he's
1: Jerry Seinfeld. Let me look at Yeah, that he's a New there.
3: York comic, New York-based comic. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. Being married is like being on a game show and you're always in the lightning round. And I think when I when I um booked him, uh that eased whatever uh, other if there were any other tensions or something, that kind of you know, it's like, oh, okay, you know, he got us a new set and you know, we're starting with Seinfeld. That ain't bad.
1: So, he wasn't yet that Seinfeld, but he was still pretty hot and pretty well known. Was, he was
3: the hottest comic in the country, but he was not. He, he didn't have his TV show or anything. He was just, you know, I mean, he was he was a headliner all across the country. I don't. Leno, Leno was probably bigger at that time. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh,
1: and we had we had Leno on this. We show. had Leno on
3: a few times. Yeah.
1: On King Five. Cut. Great, hey, thanks you guys. Good work with y'all. Thank you.
3: Nice seeing y'all. Thanks you guys. A lot of fun. Day. Day. Enjoy doing Thank the show. You ready to go? Yeah.
2: Okay, great. Let's get the stuff together. We'll have uh, it to Jay, the that was great. Hey, good work, man. Nice seeing you. Yeah. Okay, let's, you
1: got hey, uh, I right used there. to watch you when you were on the Merv Griffin show. Were, well, thanks. It's very kind. Oh, that well, that's show. very nice. Yeah. yeah. You had curlier hair then, but it's yeah, different it was now. A, d- a
2: different time. We're, you were on the Mike
1: then. Douglas show too, weren't what? you? did. You did you co-host the Mike Douglas show for I didn't a week? Oh, I mean, I was on once with Mike. That's right, Yeah. Yeah, you were good on that too. good. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thanks. Hey, I was wondering if I could get your autograph. sure. You got a piece of paper, or something? Oh.
2: Uh no. Oh. Um, I mean, we got is there something? All right, great. Here's oh, a okay, you got, got a pan or anything?
1: So it, you when you took over the reins, it wasn't too long after that that um Ross schaefer got a uh, an offer to go to Hollywood. Yeah, it was a, a year course, and a half actually. after that.
3: Because I I started I came in probably through season two, but uh but so so season three was my first full season and then about two thirds of the way through season four, that's when Ross got the got the offer to do the um uh, the LA gig, you know the the um uh, whatever the late show was there.
1: Yeah, and he would be the first to tell you now he feels very badly about uh, how he left. Uh, at least he felt he left everybody in the lurch because it was like, uh, hey, you got this opportunity. See ya. I'm gone.
0: Goodbye
3: everybody. Yeah. And he
1: he was gone in the middle of the week when you were already planning a show.
3: Yeah, it was tough. I think in those days we were still taping on Thursdays. I got a call on Tuesday. I mean, you know, obviously I knew that Ross was down there interviewing. I got a call on Tuesday from some agent at William Morris, who I'd never heard of before. Uh, Wasn't Ross's, you know, local agent saying, Mr. Schaefer wanted me to be in touch with you to let you know that he has accepted an offer and he will not be returning to Seattle. I said, well, Mr. Schaefer, is Mr. Schaefer aware that we have a show on Thursday and that he has a contract? Um, uh, so yeah, that was weird. Ross, Ross and I have talked about this a couple times since. And he said- But there's
1: been a, there's a, a conflicting story that he didn't have a contract and that's why he was able to 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 leave. Did he have an actually have a contract?
3: Yes, he did have a contract and I had talked ah. with people at King And we all kind of agreed that, look, it all could have been handled better, but we're not going to, I mean, how how can you hold this guy? I I think it might have been Craig Smith and I talking about that. I said, we can't hold him. I mean, this
1: Craig Smith, the program program
3: director. director. It's too good of an opportunity. And Ross has since said, much like you you mentioned, he's since apologized to me about that. And I I totally get it. First of all, how do you say no to an offer like that? And he said everything was just happening so fast, and they just said, we'll take care of it. He said, and no, I had no idea it was going to be so, <laughs> you know, it, it was, he was, he was kind of thrust into the middle of this whirlwind with which he was unfamiliar, of course, because you know, he'd only done, done Seattle TV and he trusted people to say, well, we'll you know, d- don't worry about it. We'll take care of all that. So I, I totally get that. totally yeah. get it.
1: I, I, I. And I, I, think, uh... I think,
3: did you host that first, did you host the show that Thursday?
1: Uh, no i don't think so i did get to host it once you were looking for it, oh it might, al- alternate host it, hosts, it so.
3: might have been keister i remember our i don't know why i remember our guest was burt ward who played robin on the Batman.
1: Yeah, now i i did that show uh, burt ward was because that,
3: that was that was that first show that was that was that was, that was oh, okay, show. So, okay so so you, you must have been hosting the first one because yeah yeah that was that was the first one
1: boy that's painful to watch
0: now tonight's guest host i come from a
1: small town down in Oregon, as a matter of fact. Bend. Anybody heard of that? Yeah, yeah it's a true story. Bend got its name when early settlers came through the central Oregon area. There were two guys walking along, and they noticed there was a river right through there that takes a big turn right there. So one guy said to the other guy, you know something? I got an idea on what we're going to name this town. The other guy said, yeah, what do you got in mind? He said, turn. We'll call it Turn, Oregon. <laughs> the guy said, no, that's no good. How about... Bend. Yeah, that's a lot better. Bend, that'd work. That's the way they name a lot of small towns and places. They just call it what it is. There's a town called Beaver Marsh, because that's what's there. Uh, Grass Valley, Antelope. You've heard of Crater Lake. Lake with a crater in it. And you know there's a mountain down there called 3 Finger Jack. Because if you look at it, it looks like a guy holding up three fingers. Well, that? They already read this, didn't they? I guess you know they are going to have to change the name because a bunch of vandals last summer broke off two of the fingers. Then I think you had uh, people as varied as Tony Ventrella did a guest host we, thing. There was a guy from Real People. There yeah, was I, a, can't that remember, was a I can't syndicated remember show. his
3: name. And there were also people coming up to me, you know, who wanted to be like um, – Pete Barbeauty was interested in becoming the host. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: He's funny. He was
2: good. He
3: was funny. Yeah, yeah. He really wanted to be the host.
2: Beethoven was a genius, and nobody believed in him, but he believed in himself. And I think that's advice to all the young musicians. And Beethoven's own wife didn't believe in him. He said to his own wife, he said, Someday I'm gonna write a symphony. She said, Y'all
0: gonna write
3: a symphony. <laughs> <laughs> like like people from LA were kind of finding out that, oh, this job's available. So I was, I was being pressured to look at some L.A. people. I didn't, I didn't want an L.A. person. <clears throat> I, was, I was convinced, and you know, right or wrong, b- because the way Ross left, it was perceived as a little bit of, you know, I'm too good for Seattle and blah. And so th- there, was, there was a little bit of animosity within the Seattle press and all that. And I thought I really wanted to be somebody within, within the Almost Live family, just to show some continuity. And specifically, I wanted to be somebody with Seattle roots or at least northwest roots. Yeah. Um, but some of the other people at King no no n- n- nobody within the show but um other people were saying no we want you to interview you know w- we want you to give you know to try out some of these other people who normally I would not have have uh
1: since you are uh you know you're sort of a well I will not use the word carpetbagger but you came from elsewhere too. I did come from elsewhere that's I, right. I'm surprised that you that you thought that was so important. It, I, I totally agree that it was but it wouldn't be that obvious to somebody who also came from elsewhere and, and had adopted the city
3: i guess not although it's you know i'm i'm sure you've been told this too pat because i think i think we all have when the show was on the air and even now every now and then somebody will come up and say you know i moved to seattle when that show was on the air and almost live taught me more about what seattle was like than anything else because you know because we deal in stereotypes and that and that sort of thing and boy um my first year of the show i got a crash course in seattle because you have to in order to understand the jokes i mean it's it really is a it's it's a it's it's a it's a high pressure um grad school on seattle because you you know <clears throat> you've got to know the history you have to know why boeing is funny but Warehouser is not you have to know <laughs> what fremont is what mercer island is what kent is certainly what bothell is you have to know who the players are, although Bill Gates was not a player when we first started out, but... You
1: know, and he, if you don't know what those places are, you have to create them. Yeah. You have to, you have to create Kent as, as the stereotype that, that, that that's, Kent That's was. true. Yeah.
3: And the people accept that. Hello, I'm Bill Stainton, producer of Almost Live. Those of you who actually read the Seattle Times may have seen this article in last night's paper, where I'm quoted as saying, we're going to stop making fun of Kent. needless to say I was shocked and angered by this flagrant misquote and I'm here to set the record straight what I actually said is that we're going to stop making fun of Kant 18th century German philosopher Immanuel Kant his concepts of the categorical imperative transcendental logic and the second Copernican revolution have been the butt of many many almost live sketches in fact The popular Mind Your Manners with Billy Kwan series is almost entirely based on the second and third chapters of Kant's critique of practical reason. (laughs) But then Nancy Guppy pointed out Kant's idea that the human mind imposes its own order on the world of phenomena while the world of things in themselves is itself unknowable. And we realize that we may have been a little too harsh on the man often called the father of modern philosophy. And so we're going to hold off for a while. Now, as for Kent. <laughs> but you're right. But, but, but for me as an outsider, I had to learn that stuff really fast. Um, to There's
1: out. no bigger giveaway for a brand new out-of-town newscaster than to hear them pronounce Squam or Puyallup. He, you he said, "Not nah, right. you're not from here. Right. Or nah, as Brian
3: not. Tracy did for his first day at Evening Magazine. Uh, here we <laughs> are at the Font Leroy Ferry. Like, wow. Okay,
1: <laughs> I must have missed that one. That's oh, it was good. so
3: fun! I happened to be in post when they were editing the show, and Walt McGinn, who was the post operator, turned around to whoever the evening producer was and says, "Please tell me there's another take." <laughs> well, there are, <laughs> but he says Font Leroy in every one of them. So,
1: and you know the guy that was the cameraman on that shoot. <laughs> could have said,
3: ah, Brian, actually, no, no, I, no, I hadn't per-
1: thought about that. <laughs> but says, no,
3: I'm
0: just the cameraman. What do I care?
1: But I, I think, just-
3: but I think all those people were from out of town. I mean, Penny Legate and all that. I mean, they're Northwesterners now, but yeah, anyhow, yeah. but you do learn fast. And, and I, and I did feel that that was really important.
1: So as a result of that, there was a fellow named John Keister that was on the show, right? More of the show than on the show, I guess. Be- and he would do these bits that he called assignment danger. Oh, I love assignment be, danger. The common people of Seattle have never known
2: what lies behind these heavily fortified walls
1: until now. And and, and even early on because I was just an observer of the show, I wasn't part of it for those first few years, but every time I would watch the show, I'd say this guy's stuff is the best thing on the show. Yeah. There's no question. it's the funniest and most yeah. novel stuff on the show exactly why don't they why don't they move him up to be on more frequently or something i just i was uh very impressed from the start and he loved television. you could tell he was intrigued with. Uh, you know, with, with, slow with, motion, with what, what running things backwards, do. green screen, all that stuff. Yeah, he was like
3: at. like a modern-day Ernie Kovacs.
1: Yeah, the kids need to learn about Ernie Kovacs.
3: This is Perthy Dove Townsville saying
0: I'll see you just outside the bookend. Is there a concert tonight, Bruce? I'm just all over goose pimples for the Mozart. I thought so, too.
1: I thought so. So, I mean, I immediately was attracted to him as, as a, a, a TV broadcaster guy because he just was doing stuff. And I thought at that time, I thought if they can if they can mine stuff like his and more people like that, this show could not just succeed. It could be really groundbreaking, even though it's a local show. Right. I think it could it could become a national show. It's different.
3: Well, what I what I really liked about about John, because it really. It really pretty much just came down to between you and John as as, po- as possible hosts as far as I was concerned um, what I liked about John was that he had he had a little bit of an edge and an attitude I mean he wasn't he wasn't the obvious choice um yeah. but the but the and, and he was not necessarily the popular choice there were a lot of people who yep. said, no this is a mistake um and you know I that didn't, took, I didn't that, know that, but, but here here is the big question because you're absolutely right Pat John basically was the icing on the cake. So what happens when you take the icing and make it the cake? I mean, can you still can you still have a show that works? And we really fumbled through season five trying to figure that out. And I made a huge mistake uh, in, in season five, which almost cost the show. I mean, you know, the show almost got canceled. Uh, and, and what
0: was the mistake?
3: The mistake was I took John, who has his own distinct personality, his own distinct style of comedy, and I basically plugged him into a format that had been completely designed to capitalize on Ross Schaefer's strengths. Uh And Ross's strengths were not John's strengths. Uh, It's interesting that John's first interview show 501 also happened to be Jerry Seinfeld. And it was Hmm. not, it was an uncomfortable interview. Fortunately, Jerry could cover for it. Um, But John was not a good interviewer. And if he were like right here in front of me, I mean, you know, he he gets it.
1: Glad to see we got rid of that ceramic
3: stuff. Yeah.
1: Only first Found class. Found a break eventually. First
2: class this season.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, that's yeah. all the time we have. Okay. We'll be right there. Thanks for being with us. Jerry, thank you for
2: being here on our political freedom night.
1: Thanks. It's great to be here. Are
2: you interested in the
1: elections no. at all?
3: No. Not at all? Not in the slightest. That, that wasn't John's skill set. John had an amazing skill set. It just wasn't Ross's skill set
1: right and so
3: season five was i I was i was miserable that entire season just
1: so you basically you you had to plug john into an existing format it was an hour-long show we had a live band right uh and it was very much uh, a knockoff of the conventional talk show it was it was was
3: basically Letterman Letterman meets snl kind of that yeah those those were our two big models
1: there would be a monologue and then and then maybe there would be a, a bit uh, either on tape or live. Right. And then, there'd be a, and
3: a, then, a comedian and then, and then yep. a guest or, and, and, and sometimes maybe an A guest and a B guest. Um, yeah,
1: that must have been uh, in some excruciating pressure uh, for you as a producer, because a lot of the guests you had on the show were these out of town comics. <laughs> right. And if if they got sick or they didn't show up or whatever, now you got this big gap in your show and the, the nervousness that would come with that, I think would be uh, brutal. So at some point you decide, and I don't know who decided it, but the show was always on the verge of being canceled, always. That's
3: right. And never never gotten much of any support, certainly not any marketing support and ads you know, or anything no, like that. No, yeah, no, no. Yeah.
1: I was a, a commercial and a promotional director at King at right. the time. So I was doing promos for the show, but nobody was asking me to. <laughs> I just I did love, it because I like the show. I
3: still remember the first promo that I was involved in. You know, when I first came on board, we did a promo which which you wrote and it was all of us sitting around the writers table. And it was like, "Well, what if what what if we make this character, you know, more like this?" And somebody said, "What if you just shut up? What if you mind your own business? What if you take your idea, roll it <laughs> up into a tiny little thing and stick it" <laughs> And then, and then then the voiceover was at almost live. We never stop asking, "What if?" (laughs) See, I don't
1: remember that one. Absolutely love that. Sounds way too smart for me. I
3: thought that was so. Yeah. What if you take your idea, roll it up into a tiny?
1: (laughs) Two promos that I do remember is one that shows Ross in the dressing room. He's in the mirror Mm -hmm. and he's reading a script and he's getting ready and in a very. somber faced John Keister comes walking into the dressing room and produces a rubber chicken, which Ross then studies up and down and then nods his approval of. And John leaves the room. That was the promo (laughs) really stupid. And, uh, and then there was another one that my brother had a golden retriever, Uh beautiful dog. And it was a dog that if that if you came up to it or said hi to it or anything, the dog would bare its teeth oh. It'd smile. It looked like it was smiling. <laughs> and uh, so I said, we gotta use this dog in a promo. And, and so it was almost live. And uh, it starts with a guy sitting at his home and he's, it's all furnished and everything. And he's got a TV set and he's watching almost live. Yeah. And you can see Keister's face on the TV. And then the premise of the promo was that this show is so compelling so so um so riveting that it will draw you in literally. And so you see the guy in his chair being pulled into the TV set. Oh, cool. He disappears into it, then the furniture starts going into the TV set. And then at the end, the only thing left in the room is this dog. And Keister, when we cut to the screen, and Keister holds up a dog biscuit and goes, Yeah. And the dog, then you see the dog move. Oh, that's, into,
3: how do I not remember well, that? That's,
1: while the dog is smiling. It, it really yeah. was cute.
3: Oh, that yeah. sounds great. I just, I, I have, I have zero memory of that.
1: You'd have to picture this on this podcast, but here it is.
0: Saturday night, get ready for King
1: Five's Almost Live.
0: Guy and his wife
1: are watching the show. The wife gets pulled into the TV.
0: Pulling you forward.
1: All the Then all the furniture. A sheer then the guy to and now it's just the dog and the tv dog smiles yeah. keister says almost that alive. and the dog Saturday gets pulled into the tv on King. yeah it's it's a pretty good one it's yeah. it's just funny it's just stupid yeah. but uh, yeah. so hey uh, so let's just let's let me talk a bit and I, I there's a guy named Brian Johnson that wrote a book yeah. about almost live a few years ago and I just recently reread it, and I have to say, he is a good writer, and he did a really nice. job. He did job. a great
3: job with it. Yeah,
1: I mean, his his opening preface is is really really great, uh, but he he talks uh, about this infamous space needle bit.
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: Which, um, as I've reviewed the space needle bit, I realized. Wait a minute! I, I'm the announcer on on the beginning of it. We interrupt this program thing i said i didn't oh, remember I guess that's that.
3: right yeah that's right you were
1: because i really wasn't involved with the show that much at the time right uh, right so, so you you tell the story of how this this bit which uh which uh became infamous but it, in a way it really kind of turned the, the show into a thing
3: it did and uh I have to take the blame for that because I, I wrote that and edited it. And when I watch it back now, it's like, oh, this really does drag on for a long time. <laughs> it's a, <laughs> a much longer bit than it should have been. Um, but some, for some reason, I can't remember why, but we were given the opportunity to do the show, tape the show on a Saturday, which we did. But Saturday was on, happened to fall on April 1st. And this is like, I don't know, 92, 87. And
1: you would typically tape on a Thursday, right?
3: Well I think at that time no no cuz Keister was the host it was a half hour so
1: okay I think okay.
3: we were taking you know, on Saturday but I I can't remember the circumstances but somehow they said hey why don't you do a live show on April 1st okay um so we did yeah the the, the details escaped me but we thought, and I thought, but it
1: is April it is April 1st of course you got to do some kind of
3: Exactly April, so April hey food, live think, comedy show on April 1st what could go wrong and um so somehow I came up with this idea that the space needle had fallen over and I, I made sure to script because of the, you know, uh, the final four basketball tournament happened to be being played in Seattle that night, you know, one of the tournaments. So I made up this thing saying because of the final four, you know, tournament, the space needle was empty. Thank goodness. And there've been no injuries, but, and, and we had our graphics department make up these, you know, cool looking graphics of the space needle kind of crashed around, you know, around uh, lower queen Anne yep. and, um, and, and and we got this this you know we hired a guy who was specifically not an a, a, an almost live cast member to play the newscaster. Interrupt- was that
1: the mistake, possibly?
3: That was well. I think if whole, we're
1: gonna call it a mistake, I mean the I, whole I thing
3: was a mistake. So we so 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 we broadcast this, and of course the studio audience is laughing because you know they you know they can see we're standing right there.
0: We interrupt our regularly scheduled programming for
4: the following special report. Good evening. Approximately seven minutes ago, at 6.53 p.m., the Space Needle collapsed. Information at this point is incomplete. We do know that injuries are minimal. Fortunately, the needle was nearly empty when the accident occurred. A maintenance man who was working on the lower level has apparently been taken to Harborview's emergency room for minor injuries. Structural damage to the surrounding buildings is extensive. The Space Needle itself is beyond repair.
0: I was walking, I was walking along Mercer here, and I heard this sound, it was like thunder, and I, I looked up and it was swaying, it just, it was, and it just, it went over. It just, it was, it was like somebody just kicked the bottom out from under it, you wouldn't believe it.
4: It's too early, of course, to determine exactly what caused this tragedy. Certainly, recent reports of metal fatigue in the huge support girders indicated possible structural damage. In fact, we are told that the city engineer was to have received a report on possible structural dangers in the Space Needle on Monday. The Space Needle, of course, was built in 1962 as a symbol of the Seattle World's Fair. It soon became a symbol for the city itself. Normally, at this time, on a Saturday evening, the needle would have been in full operation. Fortunately, because of the basketball championships, the structure was closed down. In a way, I suppose this is the best possible time for this to have happened although the shock may well last into the coming weeks. Again, the space needle has fallen down. There are no serious injuries. And although nobody knows for certain what caused this disaster, there is speculation that the weekend construction on the metro bus tunnel may have been a factor.
0: We interrupt this special report so that we can take you to an even more special, totally live, April Fool's edition of Almost Live.
3: But again, so the show's live, and then we had you know eight, you know April first, April Fool's Day, flashing across the screen, which I didn't want to do because I thought, oh, that's gonna that's gonna ruin it. Yeah. And I really thought, I I, I, sw- I didn't think we would fool anybody. I, I thought maybe a few people might go to their window and go, oh, okay, I, okay, they had me in there for a minute. Good night.
0: A special live April Fool's edition of Almost Live. As if
1: everybody in Seattle can see the Space Needle right out their window.
3: And an all-new episode of Billy Kwan. But during the uh, during the first commercial break, again, keep in mind the show is live, our our switchboard operator, King's switchboard operator, I forget who it was at the time, she kind of races into the studio and comes up to my producing desk, which had never before happened, and she tells me that We've now overloaded and shut down the King TV um, switchboard. But it gets worse. We've also overloaded and shut down the Space Needles switchboard. Oh my. But it gets worse. Also, <laughs> overloaded and shut down the entire 911 emergency system in Western Washington. So it's like, oh crap. This. <laughs> <laughs> So, that,
1: are you are you saying that's bad?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It turned out to be bad. Yeah, okay, Mr. this is not good. So, uh, so we were in Studio B, as you know, and Studio. And B, the
1: show is still on, right? The show is still, still on. A... Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. We're, we're we're in commercial break. So basically, I'm finding all this out, and we have you know we have a minute and a half until we come back to you know to live TV. So I quickly said, "Quick, let's wheel one of the cameras out out to the back because uh, you know behind the studio audience are these big doors that go to." outside where you can actually look up and see the space needle
1: right so we actually right. came
3: back and john you know john's a host he said okay so we're getting some people or blah blah and um you know or But there it is here's a live shot the space needles there it was a joke we're sorry it's a joke that's it but um that didn't go over too well so on sunday
1: cat cat was out of the bag, was by out now, of the bag yeah. Then yeah.
3: on sunday which was you know one of our days off I spent most of the day on the phone with uh, Space Needle people and their lawyers, and they were going to sue me personally, uh, King TV, NBC, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And uh, but then on Monday, all of a sudden, this was headline news in every major paper in the country. I still have a bunch of them in my in my uh, garage, someplace like from the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Tampa this and that, and the Las Vegas something or other, and. And this was
1: all before social media. Yeah, exactly. God knows where it would have gone today. Right.
3: So this was more publicity than the Space Needle had had since Elvis was there. And and in fact, maybe even more than that. That's right, baby. Yeah. (laughs) So all of a sudden on Monday, I'm getting calls from the same people who were threatening to sue me on Sunday saying, hey, listen, how can we milk this? Uh -uh. (laughs) But King said. And and
1: you said, you know, I'm from Pennsylvania. I know a thing or two about that. I can
3: do that. But that was the only time. And I mean, as you know, Pat, we were asked to apologize virtually every week. Somebody would be offended by something we said. So I would, I would yeah. field phone calls. Like every Tuesday morning, I'd take the phone calls from the people who were irate. Um, this was the only time we ever actually apologized on air. And the reason for that was because by shutting down the 911 system, we literally had put lives in danger. So, okay, yeah. that's... Um, I mean, that's true. In, in hindsight, we're lucky that nobody did die, as far as I know.
2: When the roof starts to leak, moisture starts to
3: get inside the structure,
4: and that moisture causes the steel to want to corrode. The weakest link probably is, is going to be some of these joints, uh, some of the support bracing that's in place. You know, those are the kind of things that have the most opportunity for corrosion to kind of get into some cracks take hold and then expand from
0: there the symbol of hope and progress from 1962 gives up the fight
1: so did the apology come like okay i know we put some lives in danger blah blah blah. no it was actually it it was actually a
3: sincere apology that john did um on the set we pre-taped it though and did not show it to the studio audience so the audience at home wow. saw it but the studio audience didn't because you know you don't want to kind of bring that energy
1: god you... that was smart that was smart thank you
3: well you know we learned because i think i don't know if it was that year or not but there was a time you know we used to have the studio audience come in and they and they stay in the audience lobby until it was time to bring them into the you know into the studio right and do you remember the week <laughs> there was a week when for some reason the aids quilt was being displayed in the audience lobby. So here, like for like the the forty minutes before they come in for a comedy show, <laughs> our studio audience oh, is oh just there with the AIDS quilt, and that's just it doesn't set up the right context, really. Before
1: we bring you into the studio for tonight's show, everybody, right. Let it, let's show you a screening of Schindler's List. Right. <laughs> Okay, that's over. Now, come on into come the on studio. In. All right, Get ready to laugh, everybody. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, Bill, do, am I remembering this correct? That you used to, not you personally, but th- that they would ply the audience with booze prior to the show while they were sitting in the lobby, there'd be free wine. We did, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah. Because I, one of one of the things that we had to do every week was get a temporary liquor license. Uh, so that would be like, you know, um, Jim McKenna's job or somebody, or Scott Schaefer or Ross Schaefer. I don't know. I get the two Schaefer's mixed up now. You know, it's, it's, it's been yeah. a it's been I can a never time. tell them I apart. Know we ha- I know we had a couple Schaefer's on staff, but... Um,
1: they have a similar name and they look a lot alike. They look I, almost,
3: almost identical. I've had the same problem. Yeah, yeah, it was really confusing.
1: And of course, adding to the confusion, Billy Joe Shaver, the country artist, was an intern for six
0: months. I'm gonna live forever, I'm gonna cross that river. I'm gonna catch tomorrow. Night.
3: But um uh yeah no no we would like every uh you know the day before we would get a temporary liquor license which you could do and then we'd serve the booze and that started to become problematic so we stopped doing that after a while.
1: I think I asked Steve Wilson about this and and my memory was that it ended when a guy a guy out in the audience uh, uh, had a Technicolor yawn, shall we say, in the middle of the show.
3: Uh, that's possible. Was, Boy, I don't had, remember that. But we I had to stop swear the show. That did not happen.
1: Oh well. Yeah. I like. I like that. It, actually, you, you know, know what, I want to tell I that. Actually, I, I'm going to keep telling that story. I actually I think
3: that way. did happen. Come to think, it's 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 so weird, Pat. With a show like that that was on for so long, 15 years, there's so many. I mean, you'd think something like that would stand out, but there's so many experiences like that or you know similar things i remember almost falling off the top of the space needle because i was we were for some reason we were jumping up and down on top literally on the roof of the space needle in gorilla suits and i started <laughs> towards the edge
1: <laughs> of course it's got to be a gorilla suit yeah, of course. is there anything funnier than a gorilla suit <laughs> right Maybe gorillas don't like Maybe them, so. but,
3: uh, but there were like three or four of us, uh, jumping up and down. I, I don't remember what the bit was, but I started to slip and those, and those suits are not built for traction. So I thought, I just looked, I just looked
1: a, a just looked the bit up. It's called guys in gorilla suits on the space. <laughs> and I
3: literally thought, is this how it's going to end? I <laughs> think this is kind of an ignoble ending. Um, good Lord, wouldn't that be something? That would be something, but you know, almost
1: live producer perishes.
3: Well, I remember how how Bill Nye, before he became Bill Nye the Science Guy, Bill Nye the Science Guy used to always say his biggest fear was when he dies. He knows what what the epitaph is going to say. He's just going to say, "Man dies." <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I guess if you fall off the space needle in a gorilla suit, you've at least got a better than even chance that you might survive because there'll be a softer landing it would be a softer with, landing. with the gorilla suit but no nah, they can't yeah can't but the print. problem
3: is you know people guess oh well at least you know at least he died doing what he loved it's like what
1: <laughs> he loved wearing a gorilla suit
3: yeah <laughs>
1: it was yes. weird it was his dream he always wanted to wear <laughs> a gorilla suit and if possible off a towering edifice <laughs>
0: Off the space needle in a gorilla suit. You
1: wrote uh, and produced a lot of bits yourself. So Not you that had, many. Had,
3: I mean, not compared to you. Oh, my goodness. You were. That
4: was
1: my job. <laughs> that, that, you know, well, point.
3: I guess yeah. there is that.
1: You had to produce the show. I, I wasn't producing the show, I had time. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> you, you, uh, you produced some of the funniest stuff. Ever and my alt, I I would put this in my top five, maybe even wow, maybe even higher than that of, of favorite bits from Almost Live, and and I don't know where you came up with this idea except that I know you have a, a wonderful uh, appreciation and affinity and knowledge of the Beatles. That's
0: true. And,
1: and in fact, have built a a second career uh, around I did. much of mm-hmm. that. And um, yeah, the Beatles basically
3: so, bought my house.
1: Is, is Ringo still in the basement? <laughs> yeah,
3: can't get him out. Come on. Yeah. So,
1: so, um, but the the bit was, what well, do you explain it? I, I it's called Morocco Master, I think.
3: Oh, and we, yeah. We,
1: um, we had this guy. We had this man that worked in the sales department at King TV. Right. That w- that we decided to talk about the Letterman influence. We decided he is kind of our Larry Bud. Melman. He was
3: our Larry Bud. Yeah, yeah. His name was Dell Loader he's wonderful man we, just
1: passed away a few months ago
3: yeah um the one of the greatest people just you just look at him and you know I mean talk about avuncular and just yep, a, yep. a really gentle person not loud he's just like he, he he's the kind of guy who would kind of like fade into the background any party he he if, he if he were ever to go to a party he would just be you know oh I didn't even notice him you know he just so um I've been doing I I it probably came from some
1: what a lovely tribute
3: yeah <laughs> <laughs> <Isn't it though? laughs>
1: eminently, forgettable, eminently forgettable mr del loader everyone but, no, I, just, but I, I know what you're saying you what you're saying is sweet and it's true about him yeah and he was just eminently castable because he was perfect for certain things
3: was, yeah absolutely so um i've been you know i i, I am a, a student of the beatles in every aspect of them certainly their music and as, as a musician as somebody in music you always hear about oh yeah well i mean you know, you know if you could only it's too bad because the bass was really kind of buried in the mix but it's really good or oh you know ringo's drumming in this song is buried in the mix so that's kind of a music you know buried in the mix
1: you taught me that uh this uh, that uh, for example uh, in this in the masterpiece a day in the life mm-hmm. you had he said listen to the decay of the strings at the very oh, end the very of the end. song yeah, yeah, you yeah, can that hear a guy fade out. Mm-hmm. you can hear him shifting in his metal chair yeah. maybe maybe we can hear that here yeah
3: yeah 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 exactly it's that kind of thing
1: they gotta listen very closely right around here you hear that i think that's a very cool piece of trivia Okay. So if any of the listeners missed that, let me bring the chair creaking more forward on the mix. Now listen. Now you had to have heard that.
3: <laughs> so I thought okay, what 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 are the most kind of, you know, benign the benign instrument that's, you know, I thought maracas. I mean, cuz you know nobody thinks about maracas.
1: But I mean, you love the Beatles' your whole life is is this an idea that you carried around for years no no
3: i think i think it was kind of just a combination of knowing music and knowing dell loader because i just this 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 guy i i I like the idea that he was like he literally is responsible for some of the greatest hits in music you know in rock music history this this um unknown yeah so i we basically just you know I said you know sadly all all his you know his contribution you know he's one of the most one of the most recorded artists in all time but sadly of all time but sadly his contributions have always been buried in the mix but now oh I guess (laughs) it was also that that that, um I wonder if it was when the Beatles stuff started coming out on CD and all of a sudden people think oh my gosh you you can really hear this stuff now yeah
1: it's just it's just the strings only of Eleanor Rigby
3: right yeah like but now thanks to the wonder of like digital technology you know we can you know finally give him the credit he's due and you have all these songs like um what were some of the songs that i i don't know but i i know it ended with stairway to heaven is that is it ends with and she's uh, buying a stairway to heaven (laughs) and then these maracas (laughs) yeah sadly they were buried the main
1: and then, and then at the end of it, you have him say, I hope you enjoy oh, the music or right. something like that.
3: I so, hope you so enjoyed nice. listening to this as much as he's, I like. That's right. He's saying it
1: in such a wonderfully understated and undynamic
0: right. way. It, just, exactly. it makes it so hilarious. Yeah. Now, the album you've been waiting for by the man who has performed on more hit records than any other living artist. Yet, most people don't even know his name. He's Bob Peterson, master of the Morocco. Tragically, his inspired contributions have always been buried in the music mix, until now. Using the latest advances in digital reprocessing and the original master tape, we've remixed these timeless classics to give Bob Peterson the prominence he so richly deserves. <laughs> You'll hear, for the first time, his legendary performance on Jumpin' Jack Flag. <laughs> his driving rhythm on In a Da DeVita. And his warm sensitivity on the hauntingly beautiful, theme from Love Story. <laughs> Bob Dylan has said, I wouldn't think of going into the studio without Bob Peterson. Mick Jagger claims, The Rolling Stones would have fizzled in three years if it hadn't been for Bob Peterson. And Paul McCartney asserts, Bob Peterson won the Now you can share in this treasured heritage of wonderful music. Songs like, I Wanna Hold Your Hand, breath you take. And of course, Stairway to Heaven. These are some of my favorite songs. I hope you enjoy listening to them as much as I enjoyed recording them. To order your copy of Bob Peterson, Master of the Maracas, send $11.98 for Album or Cassette, 27 cents for a track to Bob Peterson, Post Office Box 417, Decatur, Illinois, 42716, or save COD charges by phoning
3: 1-800-RIP-OFF. <laughs> you won't be sorry. We, we were fortunate with King. We didn't have a lot of them, but we did have a few really good go-to people who were not, well, that's how Tracy, uh, got on, got on the staff. And, and, and you also, uh, technically, because, you know, you both had jobs elsewhere in King, right. And, but you were just so good, you know, you just kind of became go-to people. And then, you know, thank goodness, uh, you were able to join us.
1: Oh, this is still, uh, the luckiest, uh, circumstance of my life.
3: Although I do remember every virtually every summer, at least for like the last five summers of the show, um, you would come up to me and say, let's, let's, let's go get lunch. And so we go off campus and have lunch. And you would and like for five years in a row, you just really had me. Cause you said, I, I don't, I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm going to be coming back or not. It's like, Oh God. And like every, every year. And it was actually like, kind of like the last year where it sounded, okay, this one actually sounds real Yeah, that it's, you know, and, 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 the, and that, that was, you know, that, that was season 15. Well,
1: so. I, uh, I, I, it, it, for me to tell you that would be like me saying, what I'd prefer is if you'd grab this pillow here and smother me to death. (laughs) Of course I wanted to come back, but I also was aware. I'm, I'm way and far away the oldest person that was on the show. And I thought, eh, I got to get out of here. I just only wanted this to be a show of old guys. And, and so, and I had, you know, I had other things going on, other interests. And, and yeah, I mean, it yeah. would have been painful funny. for me to walk away, but I knew, you know, you have to know when... Yeah,
3: you know, well, unlike most of us, you actually had options. I mean, this was, well, kind of. This the only only we could, but, it... but it was weird, because he said... Like, when when we all started the show, um, uh, and, you know, I didn't start, but starting with the show, you know, we we were all pretty much in our 20s and early 30s. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like...
1: 20, I was in my mid-70s. <laughs> yeah,
3: exactly. But, you know, because I remember when... when um, it kind of went this way when the show when I first started with the show, you know, I go out to a bar and somebody would say, you know, so so what do you do? Oh, do you know the show almost live? Yeah, well, I'm the producer, and they look and they say, oh my god, but you're so young, you know, and they say, oh, like look, oh look at look at the boy wonder who produces this, mm. and all of a sudden I get into my 30s, and they say, what do you do? I produce almost live, and it's like, yeah, that's about right, yeah. <laughs> and then and then and then as we get you know towards season 13, 14, 15, I mean, you know, I, this, what do you do? I produce almost live. Really? I would have you? thought somebody much younger would be doing that. Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, I know you've had this experience too. I will see, I'll come into a bar or a restaurant or something, and some guy will come over to me. Maybe he's even using a walker.
0: And, <laughs> and he comes over and says,
1: I used to watch you on Almost Alive
3: when I was yeah, two you, you know, it's even worse when they have the walker and they say, I grew up watching you. <laughs> I know it happens. It's true. That's, that's
1: when you realize, man, we have been around a long time. So in
3: it, it's, it's especially tough. You know, as a single guy, if some, you know, cute woman in a bar walks up and says, and you think, Oh, okay. I still got it. And then she says, I grew up watching yes, you. I know. Oh my
1: God. It happens all the time. Can I get a
3: picture with yeah. you? Uh, yeah, right. sure. And then, yeah. Yeah. My mom's a big fan.
1: Yeah, I'm going to send this to my grandma. She just loved your, <laughs> I mean, it's true. It is not an exaggeration that happens. Um, yeah. So what is, uh, you know, you've gone on, as I said at the very beginning of this podcast that you've gone onto a fabulously, uh, successful and lucrative speaking career. Does that anything that you envisioned for yourself back when you were producing almost live?
3: no i no i didn't um what happened was though you know almost live around season 15 i think you know it's like okay we're 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 doing great um i mean in hindsight it was the right time to end the show because you know we were all getting old and decrepit and everything and it was getting harder and harder to do but um but i was feeling pretty good so i bought a new house and a new car and then they canceled the yeah, show
1: i did the same thing yeah. in, in my radio job yeah yeah, and i remember right. the program director saying, I don't know, maybe you shouldn't buy that house right now. But he wouldn't tell me
3: why. <laughs> you you know. Know, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, nobody told me that. Yeah. So, so you know, so I had to do something else. And and, and it, it, I mean, in actuality, I also had a had a production company. Well, that's um, right. That, that yeah, you sure. actually, you, you, Yeah, you actually did some 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 work for us. So uh, at least I had some income. But I realized, you know, I, I'm gonna need something else. And uh, through a, a series of things. Like I started writing jokes for some professional speakers, you know, keynote speakers. And in doing so I started learning more and more about that business. I thought maybe oh, maybe I could do that. Why, and why then should i be and, writing jokes
1: for other people. I could do these myself.
3: Yeah. 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 That's, that's kind of it.
1: But the, um, but the trick, I, the I, trick in being a public speaker, uh, a keynote speaker is you gotta, you gotta have something that you can talk about that makes it unique. And and for yeah. you, at least initially, it was your vast knowledge about the Beatles. And you
3: initially, yeah, initially it was the Beatles, but it wasn't just a history lesson. It was basically because you know you want to be able to sell it to corporate America. So it was about success. Yeah. yeah. And using the beat, you know, the Beatles are to this day still the most successful rock group of all time. And so what did they do that could apply to everybody else? So you
1: called it something like six things.
3: The beatles. uh the five best decisions the beatles yeah. ever made i still get booked for that yeah it, it's uh, great
1: and i've seen the presentation and uh, everybody can see it online a bit of it
3: they were together fewer than 10 years 10 years i mean come on that's nothing that's a, be honest with me here how many of you have underwear older than that about a third how many of you are wearing it now they were together fewer than 10 years when they broke up in 1970. So why are we talking about the Beatles today? I mean, really, why do we even care? Especially since there are some people who don't even like the Beatles. I know! I know, but they're out there! They're out there! I have friends who don't like the not friends. People. People, I know people who don't like the Beatles. There's one guy, Chris, who keeps saying to me, Bill, the Beatles are no longer relevant. This from a guy, this from a guy who owns not one, not two, but three albums by the Partridge family. Did you even know they had three albums?
0: in the middle of a good dream like all at once i wake up from something that keeps knocking at my brain
3: so yeah that was so so that's it and and then from then i've I've morphed recently it's not really that much of a morph uh into kind of focusing exclusively on innovation creativity and breakthrough thinking because that's that's what we had to do with almost live i mean we had to we had to create invent uh a new show every week on demand whether we felt like it or not so
1: you still do some of the beatles stuff but uh, have you ever thought about doing a keynote uh, based on the group bread
0: i love bread i love bread hey
3: have you ever tried oh bread yeah there we go that's <laughs>
1: <laughs> I remember you did a bit where you're walking around musing about the song Diary. Uh, oh, correct? yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Bob Nelson wrote yeah. that one. Yeah, it was like, you found her diary. I mean, this yeah, is questioning. Back then, people actually knew the song, but you found her diary underneath a tree. Uh, yeah, a part of the song played. I found her diary underneath it. Let's see. You found her underneath the tree. Uh-huh, uh-huh. More like, a, you know, in her sock drawer. Yeah, you just found it, did you? Yeah, You yeah, just happened. Oh, look. Oh, look, there's a book. It's her diary. Yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs)
1: That's funny.
3: I
0: found her diary underneath a tree
3: And started reading about me You found her diary underneath a tree. You you just... Found her diary underneath this tree. Okay, all right, fine. Let me let me just understand this. Let me let me get this straight. You were just walking along, minding your own business, and you just happened to walk by this tree, and oh oh look oh look, there's a diary. Okay, all right. Mm-hmm. And then you open it up. And my God, look, it's her diary. Oh, and look, she's written about you in here. What are the odds here? What are the chances? A billion to one? A trillion to one? I bet I can guess what she's written about you, too. Could it possibly be that you're a poor, delusional loser who likes to go poking around in other people's (laughs) business?
0: Huh? Is that what's in here?
3: Or maybe, maybe her diary was never underneath the tree in the first place, huh? Yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking about this. That's kind of where I'm leaning here. Maybe it was, oh in her drawer, perhaps? Perhaps in a locked drawer in the bedroom of her apartment, huh? And and maybe you picked her door with a screwdriver or or a credit card, huh? Or, Or maybe you just... Busted out her entire window while she was at work and just crawled your way in there. Is that how it went? Huh? Maybe the lyrics should have said, I found her diary underneath some socks because I'm a bastard who doesn't give a damn about anybody
2: else. Huh? Not quite as catchy that way, though, is it, Mr. Breadman? I found diary the diary Don't even
3: get me started on Baby I Don't Want You. And start me. It, it was, but yeah, yeah. Nelson wrote that. I was always shocked when anybody who was a good writer like you or Nelson wrote something and said, well, "I want Bill to do this." Like, like you. Oh my gosh! I will still never forgive me for this because you wrote Elvis oh, and made me do I'm it. So,
1: <laughs> Bill, I, I, I'm sorry you brought that up, but it has to be acknowledged and it has to be. I, I, I have to do it.
3: A... I don't know why you didn't do it. I, I couldn't sneer like Elvis. I didn't know. <laughs> I don't know why. How you wrote that and went. You know what? Staten. Yeah. Yeah, he's No, Bill, Bill,
1: we could have put Lawrence Olivia in that role. It would still have stunk. It was a lousy <laughs> bit. Uh, and then, of course, who's on camera that has to take the heat for it? You. No one knows right. that the idiot right. Ashman wrote this lame bit.
0: He was a Santa's helper who became an international sensation. Here comes Santa Claus. Here comes Santa Claus. Right down Santa Claus Lane. He was the Santa Santa tiny little toy maker who became a music legend. Bells
4: are ringing, children sing, all is merry and bright. Hang your stockings and say, oh, Santa Claus comes tonight.
0: He's the one they called Elphus. So there's a wonderful
1: anonymity to some of my favorite bits are ones that I didn't actually appear in. So I thought, well, eh, if it, if yeah. it,
3: flops- but some of the ones you did appear in, I still remember the the live bit, I think just the, the most sustained laughter in any almost live bit, I think probably in the whole history of the show uh, had to be you with the, with the, with the dog cone. Um, yeah. That, that sketch was just, yeah, I Non Nonstop. Peels. Of, I mean, once you showed up with that dog cone and then all the jokes that came on top of that, uh, it just peels of laughter from the audience. You
1: were in that bit too. I remember. Oh, I think I was the waiter. We, I yes, think. you were.
4: Robert, uh, w- what are you wearing?
1: You, you like that? It's aqua velva. There's something about an aqua velva, man. Uh,
4: no, uh, actually, I mean the cone.
1: Is it that noticeable?
4: <laughs> yeah.
1: Hey, waiter? Yes, sir. Could we get some of those oysters on the half shell and your best bottle of Chardonnay? Certainly, sir. Yeah, you don't need to yell, by the way, waiter. You're coming in just fine here. <laughs> uh, and this was said in the book that Brian Johnston wrote. And he said that he what he liked about the show and what his friends liked is that this show had sketches that had actual endings. They, they led to a punchline or an ending. Uh, unlike Saturday Night Live, so many of their things right, kind of right. Say, okay we're done wrap it up and so for a lot of stuff that i wrote i don't know have everybody else operated this way i would i would develop what was the ending of the bit and then work backwards and so
3: oh that's interesting because the endings were always the toughest which is why we did so many commercial parodies yes because because you know, commercials have a now nat- you know you know <clears throat> you know available now it's you know and there, there that's the ending of the sketch but that's interesting. I didn't know you. I, I don't think I knew knew that you worked that way. That's that's really mm-hmm. cool. Can you give me an example?
1: Uh jeez, I i, I um, uh, well, or, uh I would say uh, the uh, uh the bed I uh, wrote called Roscoe's Oriental Rug Emporium.
3: Uh- <laughs> was, was oh, based wow. on just a yeah. simple
1: stroll through uh, Pioneer Square, and I kept noticing.
3: I mean, you talk about that, you know, in, in you know, going into your list of the top 10, Roscoe's Oriental Rug Emporium is easily in my top 10 and probably in my top oh, five. that's nice.
0: Roscoe's Oriental Rug Emporium is saying, that's it, it's over, we're done, time's up, farewell, so long, toodle we're out of here. We really mean it. No kidding. This is really it this time. I know we've said it before, but this is the real deal this time. Uh, yeah, but I, I
1: just knew that how I wanted it to end. Uh, with the graphic opening uh, again, you know, <laughs> doing right. somewhere else after this guy's yeah, 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 reopening emphatically opening. said we're, we're opening finished and-, and we're done and that's it.
0: So shade your big fat bottom down here, PDQ, because I swear if you don't look things around, you'll be SOL.
2: Right,
1: right. It sort of speaks, I guess, if you want to look at it in a more grandiose way, to the the indefatigability of the American spirit. Damn it, we're not gonna finish. <laughs> We are gonna be back, and this will prove it.
0: Going out a business since 1957.
1: Uh, one more thing I wanted to ask you about, and thank uh-huh. you for your time today. Oh, you, sir. I, I was looking at an old memo that that you wrote uh, to John Keister, and uh, it's like 1989, and it and uh, you it discussed. You kind of you were summarizing what you and Keister had talked about in terms of where you were going to take the show, and oh
3: God, I'm sure I was drunk when I no no no
1: and 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 one thing you didn't touch on but that hour long show where Keister was interviewing people that got truncated to be a half hour sketch comedy show and that was and that was your idea and
3: uh, yeah that was my idea which also led us uh, into that golden time slot of saturday 11 30 we were able to push snl back a half yeah. an hour which by the way we would not have been able to do the year before or the year after that's why the only reason
1: yeah we, uh, um,
3: yeah the, the only reason we were able to do that is because of the whole um letterman leno thing and there was turmoil within nbc and they were trying to keep their affiliates happy. yeah
1: well it, it it was most fortunate and it was also fortunate that snl wasn't a very good show that, then so we could uh, we could that's look pretty true. good in compar- in comparison um but yeah, I, I don't yeah, think that,
3: that's right. That was not one of the golden periods for I SNL. I don't think you've
1: ever gotten the credit you deserve for making those kinds of decisions. I don't think the show would have been around for fifteen years, by a long shot. And you made Keister. Then you you played to his strengths, as you said. And now he's not interviewing right. people. He's doing a little monologue. He's in lots of tape pieces and live bits. He does a fake uh, newscast at the end of the show. Right, and it just really works. It really works. But but this memo I was referring to, uh, you you write all this stuff and then at the end of it you write your pal Bill, oh, and I was and I was thinking all through the years I've every time I've gotten an email from you or a letter or a text it's always your pal Bill,
3: yeah I still do that I don't know where that yeah you from. still,
1: do, I, I so I was going to ask you when did you start doing that it's like a it just seems like it's so um. Disarming, you know. Well,
3: it's kind of anachronistic, yeah. isn't it, in a way?
1: Well, which is what I love. I love anachronistic stuff. I like saying cool and daddy o and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah.
3: But I just always thought your
0: pal maybe,
1: is so maybe I should so call daddy
3: I
0: <laughs> I accept the terms of your surrender, General
3: Lee.
0: <laughs> your pal your pal
1: S grant. <laughs> don't stop being yeah, don't stop being Bill Stanton, okay?
3: Yeah, I don't know when I, I I probably started doing that in, well, it couldn't have been college because there was not email in college, uh, I don't think.
1: You could give somebody some really bad news.
3: Yeah. <laughs> to <laughs>
1: <laughs> terminate you yeah. from the show, right. and we're also going to cut off your right leg. Right. Your pal, Dr. Bill Stainton.
3: I wonder if I did it because I actually did have to terminate a few people from the show. I, I no, I always did that face to face.
1: Oh no, you should use a tweet. Always do it by tweet. Always
3: do it by. If only that technology had been available to me back then. Yeah. Yeah.
1: If only. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. You bet. You're the best.
3: You bet, Pat. This was a blast. It was fun. Uh, fun. Going down memory lane, as it were. Oh, what? Oh, watch out. There's.
1: Went right through the
0: red light.
3: I did go right through the red light. The Almost Live, Still Alive
2: podcast. Produced and edited by Morris Patrick Cashman. Technical director is Dave Tavers. Special gratitude to the legendary Kenneth George Buford McCaw, Almost Live's chief archivist. And thanks also to King TV Seattle. This program was made possible in part by the 12th century nun and mystic Hildegard von Bingen, inventor of spoken language. And by Emil Berliner, creator of the microphone. And I'm your announcer, that kid from Sluggy, Chris Cashman.